when to talk. Well, Annette, today we're going to talk about Anicca, which is a Pali word, and it means changing. Everything is transient. Nothing is solid. And it has a wide variety of uses, uh, and it's, um, it's actually built right into the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. Uh, and um, so what we can say is that when your teacher, your past teacher, Goenka, has been using the word in Nietzsche, he is absolutely right to do so. Um, but there are, uh, he actually uses the word Anapana when he's referring to Anapanasati, but he doesn't actually teach it in reference to the Sutta of Anapanasati. And that also he spends a great deal of time, like seven out of the 10 days of a retreat of doing step three of Anapanasati in the sutta at a, a highly stylized kind of way rather than a natural way it's an organized way then in fact that's one of the things that we should understand in advance for everyone is that there, there's two ways of doing things so there's two ways of learning things one is an organized step-by-step -step procedure that often is necessary uh, when one is learning, let us say, computer science or even mathematics. For instance, you've got to have the numbers. If you don't know the numbers, if you don't know your one, two, threes, it's going to be hard for you to uh, learn addition. And if you don't know addition, it's going to be hard to learn subtraction. And then after addition and subtraction, now we can go into multiplication, or actually we could go directly into multiplication without subtraction. But in order to do division, you need to know addition, subtraction, and multiplication if you're going to do it by the long division way, because we have to do subtraction there too. So this is all just simple arithmetic and simple arithmetic can be taught and generally is in about four years time in school and then there is higher levels of that and so the next thing would normally be algebra and we can go through the whole thing like that all right so the the teaching of the buddha can also be learned formally or it can be learned informally now, generally what would happen is, is that we would learn formally and then practice naturally whatever comes up. This is what the Buddha means by one by one as they occur. All right, so in this in uh, reference to Anapanasati step three, where Goenka used a highly organized way of body scanning. That's actually very good for a beginner to begin to recognize there's all kinds of body positions with all kinds of different sensations and feeling all throughout the body. But in normal practice, normal living and in normal practice of Anapanasati, we would in fact not do a scanning in the formal way, but do it 
in a natural way in the sense of whatever comes up, whatever sensations. An example right now is that on my left foot, I can feel the foot on the floor. I can feel the other foot uh, touching the floor, but it's, it's upside down, and so the toes are touching. Moving up, I can also feel the butt on the chair. That's a heavy sensation. I've also got an itch on my tummy, et cetera, mm -hmm. like that. All right. But whatever comes in that order, you don't have to do it in an order. All right. To whatever order is there, but we begin to get familiar with the body and we can either do that in an organized way or in a disorganized way and not disorganized, but more of a natural in the sense of whatever comes up. And this is would be the way that we would practice. But the way that it's taught in many places gives the students uh, the uncomfortable situation, oh, if it's taught in this order and and we do it in that order for the instructions, then that's the order that it has to be done in reality, that that's the practice itself. If the education is in an orderly way, then the practice has to also be done in that orderly way. If that's true, we're going to miss a whole lot of stuff. Because when we're looking at step two, step 13 is banging on our door and we're not listening because we want to do step two. <laughs> All right. Uh, and in the natural method, when step three just approaches, I mean, step 13 approaches, you're already ready for him. He doesn't have to bang on the door. You've got him. Okay. Um, so when we start off like that, we instead of then doing uh, it very formally that Goenka actually has, has gotten a, a, a formal way of doing things. Um, but in fact, that's also a propensity of certain groups of Indians in India. For instance, he was a Jain and so was Osho or uh, Rajneesh, and they're both highly organized. The Jain religion seems to be highly organized. Did you? Is that news to you, or did you already know that? Yeah, I know that. Yes, you know that. Okay, good. So we're on the same page then. Um, the next point is that going back to the point about a Nietzsche, that what we should be doing with the Nietzsche is actually observing and guiding the change. You see, because of Goenka teaching at an organized level, he never really got through the teaching. You can't do it all in 10 days, maybe not even in a year, if it has to be organized. And so most students, especially in the West, uh, and those that talk to me, I just normally take the natural approach. Now, basically, I can get through the organized way of talking about it because it's very easy to do. There is the Four Noble Truths, and that needs to be taught as a lesson. And then the Eightfold Noble Path would be taught as a lesson, and then the Anapanasati Sutta would be taught as a lesson. But oftentimes, those three lessons get mixed in together because they're highly uh, inner interconnected um, and that um, I would say that possibly part of the reason why Goenka teaches what he does is because he's got already a full slate of stuff that he's got to teach but it's all at a very very basic level and that he does not 
see what's basic the way that I see basic. And I think that's because you see, there's a circumstance. I'll go ahead and tell you about it is, is that um, after the British were kind of thrown out after World War Two in Burma and a military hunter took over 1954, 1953, something in that time. And that military hunter then formed a new government. And the formation of that new government had a top official uh, named Ubai Ken, and he was the Treasury Department dude. And he was Gowanka's teacher, and he had uh, some good friends within the Sangha. And so right from the very beginning, starting about 1954, uh, Ubai Ken started having uh, lessons, mostly for the employees that he had under him, which would be, you know, all the accountants, basically, of, uh, of Burma. And that Goanka was familiar with some of them, and so he got into that course, and he'll say that the original reason that he took this uh, uh, Vipassana retreat by Ubakin was because he had bad headaches. He was worried way too much. And so... By 1959, which was only five years later, the uh, the Burmese government took the wild idea that, oh, we can manage our own country. We don't have to manage it the way the British did, because the way that the British managed um, Burma was by bringing all of the already well-known, uh, let us say, the well-educated Indians who knew English, who knew accounting and who knew all of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, uh, the, the British then installed an Indian brigade to run the country of Burma. Burma wanted to do that themselves. And so by 1959, they were throwing Indians out left, right and center and out with Gawanka also. He was deported from Burma in 1959. Luckily enough, he deported a whole lot of money with him. <laughs> and so that was the uh, the beginning of, um, uh, this is, is called Damagiri, and it's in the in the, the country town of Igatpuri. Have you ever been to Igatpuri? No, I have not been there. Okay. He also was doing retreats in Jaipur, Hyderabad, and other places. And I followed him around, and I did some retreats in Hyderabad uh, as well as uh, Jaipur. In fact, I think I got my best education in Hyderabad because I learned more about India there than I could anyplace else because they had the dog duty aesthetic and the cow aesthetic and the naked dudes walking around. I mean, they were just really deep into it as well as the fact that by the name of the city itself, it was a Muslim city anyway. Yes. Yeah. Hyderabad, the word bad is like in Baghdad. It's a, uh, uh, generally it's an Islamic term. So, um, the point then, let's look at uh, the concept of a Nietzsche. You know that there is a Trilokana, on, excuse me, uh, whatever the Pali word, uh, the three characteristics of a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta. Okay. Now, I've had several different ways of looking at that tri uh, triangle. Uh, and it seems like the order of the words have some value especially if you go back to some of the more, uh, let us say, detailed poly uh, expressions like 
Um, oh, Shabe Shankara Anicha. Shabe Shankara Dukkha. Shabe Dhamma Anatta. Have you heard that before? Yes. Okay, so, all right. So what does that mean? It means that uh, all the Dhamma itself, which is higher than uh, the, the Sankara. So Anicca and Dukkha are both Sankara. In other words, everything that can change will change. And everything that does change dies. All right. Mm. But the uh, but the Anatta is above that. So what you could say, if you look at my hands, you'll get more out of this because I'm giving you pictures. All right. That Anicca and Dukkha are in it. But mm. Anatta is above it. Mm. All right. Now, there's another way of looking at it, and that is Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta means that you've got Anicca, and when Anicca happens, you've got a choice. Are you going to choose Dukkha, or are you going to choose Anatta? It's kind of like a fork in the road. You're, you're hauling down the road, and you come to a fork in the road, you've got to make a choice. You're either going to go down that road or down that road. Okay? And often, the road not taken is anatta and the road mostly taken is dukkha that when something happens we don't like it something new happens we don't know what it is and so we naturally are afraid of it we like consistently because we like to know and we would like to keep things known we don't like it when things change there's the dukkha right there we don't like it when things change all right but the important point is, is that we have a choice in there if we can take that choice. And that is the choice of Anatta. In other words, whatever changed is not me, so is not my Dukkha. Mm. Now that's profound right there. In fact, that's possibly the deepest part of the teachings that we can just say it like that. When anything changes, it's not my business, and so it's not my dukkha. It's not mine, none of my business, all right? That, what that means is, is that when something changes, if I care, I suffer, or at least I'm uncomfortable, not, uh, not satisfied. But if something changes and I don't care, then I'm okay. In other words, I don't put myself into it. I don't identify with it. I don't pick it up and hold it and carry it and and uh, let us say, dare someone to take it away from me. I'm not holding it. They can take it. It's just laying there, laying around. I'm not interested. The Buddha, in fact, had some um, analogies to that. Uh, would be that if someone, uh, if someone or maybe a small... Good. When someone is uh, um, uh, going into the forest where the monks are and they gather up some sticks and leaves, the Buddha asked the monks, would you care if the guys came and got some sticks and leaves? And the, and the monk says, no, we don't care. And that, then the Buddha uses that as an analogy for any and everything. If come, someone came and picked up and carried away your good name, 
Would you care about that? Well, how can they pick up and carry your good name anyway? Right? So why should I bother? Why should I care? Let them take it, you know? <laughs> but if I think, oh, my good name belongs to me, then I will suffer. It's my business. So this is the first education about um, Anicca, is, is that everything is changing, and we do have a choice. And the choice is something that's built right in to the Four Noble Truths, and it's most specifically found as right noble effort in the Eightfold Noble Path. And yet, Goenka doesn't bother to talk about all of the Eightfold Noble Path. Basically, what he teaches in the Eightfold Noble Path is two out of the eight. Well, two plus uh, some of the other stuff uh, in the sense that, yeah, the sila part. But the panya part, he only does two of those uh, and, uh, and doesn't do the other two. All right, what is the two that he does? It's sati, to remember. He's, he teaches that strongly because he keeps saying, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. That's the sati. To, never, mm. to wake up and to recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath. That's the sati. He emphasizes sati. And he also investigates through the body scanning, investigation, to investigate the body. Well, Maybe that's the thing to do in a 10-day course. If you have a 20-day course and the, after 10 days of investigating the body, now we'll actually investigate the mind. But the fact is, is that we can't practice it that way. In order to investigate the body, we have to investigate the mind. And that, in fact, if we're going to have the choice about it, then the Buddha recommends long breath to understand it, to have sati, in fact, sati of the long breath, that requires the mind to begin to control the breath to make it long. So already we're making a change. Yes, go ahead. So yeah, one. So this this was also my confusion. And once I also asked one teacher, uh, assistant teacher of Goenka about this changing breath, right? And they say you should not change; you should only observe. He does not know what he is talking about in the form of what the Buddha teaches. He is only saying what he has heard. That don't, don't change the breath is a very, 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 very common teaching. And it's going to be part of, but not all of the downfall of Western Buddhism. Because there are a whole lot of things that have to be done correctly. All right. That in fact... Let me cut to the short of this. The shortcut is if you, uh, when anything changes, when a Nietzsche cha uh, happens, when something does happen, and you have uh, all along been in dukkha, if you don't change anything forever, all along, when something happens, you're going to be in dukkha. We have to make a conscious change that, no, that's not my business. Mm. Okay. The next point is, uh, along with that, is the one who, when something changes, winds up in dukkha, is a victim of that dukkha. 
a victim's mentality. And victims have the, uh, the thought of, oh, I need help out of my dukkha. I need a Jesus. I need a guru. I need a girlfriend. You know, anything, you know, that we'll look around to see if we can find to get us out of our dukkha to where the entire teachings of the second noble truth is all about that all of the dukkha is between the ears. That we cannot find something on the outside to fix something on the inside. We have to find something on the inside to fix something on the inside. And when the inside is all fixed up, then we can deal with and perhaps even fix the outside world too. But nothing on the outside is going to fix us, and yet our entire society, Indian, Western, everywhere, is set up that, oh, you suffer because you need whatever I've got to sell. So if I'm selling religion, you need religion. If I'm selling a government, then you need to vote. If I'm selling cars, then you need to buy a car. So that's the way that the society works. And why? Because the guy who's trying to sell the car thinks he's going to be happy if he can sell you a car. And he's generally miserable, even though he sells cars. So with that, we can begin to understand that the outside world is not the solution. And yet we have been taught, programmed and trained and then practiced doing that our whole lives. That's part of the ignorance. The ignorance is, is that dukkha comes from the outside. Where in fact, it actually comes from the inside, our own greed and our own ill will and our own ignorance. That's where the dukkha comes from. So that means that we're going to have to change something on the inside. And the first thing the Buddha recommends is to change the ignorance. And then later we'll change the greed and the ill will. But the first thing we got to do is start working on that ignorance. And then start changing that. So the entire teaching of the Buddha is a change model. It's not a static model. It's not, oh, you look and you look and you look and finally you'll be okay. No, it's got to, you got to look to see it so bad that you got to change it no matter what the teacher says. And then you're okay. All right, that in fact, that's the Vipassana model, which is also built into the 16 stages of insight. Have you ever heard of a document coming from, basically it's out of the Vasudhi Maga, but it's got its roots back to the Vasudhi Maga, probably about 200 AD. But by 450 to 500 AD, all 16 stages of insight were already set up. Are you familiar? You said you were familiar with that, right? I, I know a little bit, and this was one reason I stopped doing Vipassana, <laughs> going to okay. Because once I read that, okay, you have all this, uh, I was thinking you are going for a happy happiness, but then I read, okay, you go into this pain and misery and frustration, and then I said, no, no, I don't want to go there. Right, that in fact, in Western yeah. Buddhism, they've even labeled it as the dark night of the soul. Have you heard that yes. expression? Okay. So, talked a lot about it, yes. <laughs> right, so in the 16 stages of insight, this document we're talking about, Starting with step six, we'll talk about step one through five later, but starting with step six, one, the student, after he has done so much in Nietzsche, after he has seen so much and done so much in the first five, the dissolution, destructions, and all of that, then step six is he becomes fearful, he becomes um, miserable, 
he gets um, uh, dejected, depressed. Um, um, the, the word that I'm looking for is uh, he feels that there's no way out. That's what I mean by the dark night of the soul is we've reached kind of a dead end. But then yes. step 11 of that follows is, is that he makes the decision he's got to get out and then he redoubles his effort or he actually starts putting effort into it. And that's step 11. And then step 12, guess what that is? It's the four noble truths in the eightfold noble path. Okay, so what we do at the noble step is that we forget about the first 11 steps of the of the uh, Vipassana practice and we start right with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. Because it's already in step 12 is when that change is introduced. But in fact, if you look at it correctly, you'll see that no, the change actually starts with step 10. To where mm -hmm. Goenka's teaching of the 10 day is all in the first five um, items on that list. All right. So what he is teaching has the value in two ways, because it has also two items on the Eightfold Noble Path, and that is Sati, to wake up, and number two, Ditti, to look. But that's not going to make anything happen until the looking is good enough to where the Dukkha is seen clearly enough that it is Dukkha, sort of like a hot potato or a hot rock, and somebody passes you that hot rock, you want to get rid of it, okay? The desire to change, to get rid of it, is built into you once you see how dangerous and how unwholesome the dukkha is. Then you will change automatically, all right? But in our method, the way that the Buddha teaches it, is, is that we actually emphasize that you've got to take control of your life. You've got to make those changes. Otherwise, you're going to stay in that victim's position of looking for somebody else to fix you. And when we get that change made in a great big way, by the way, this is called Sama Sankapa in the Pali, that when that change is made, our attitude changes from being a victim into being a winner with thoughts like, I can handle that. Or, yeah, let's get it done. Or, I've got it. Never mind, start again, I've got this. Okay, that's the attitude that we change from poor me, this, this sucks, into, wow, I've got it made. And that's a change of attitude, and it's required. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so one, one thing is uh, also, one thing you learn from Goenka method and also Saida method is change will only happen when you pass through dark night of the soul, right? So they say this is like a necessary. You have already been through enough dark nights of the soul to be able to see the dukkha. You yeah. already know dukkha. In fact, that's one of the things that when we get into the Eightfold Noble Path, that's a question that students are often asked, and we can clear that up. All right, the students, uh, basically, the Eightfold to Noble Path then starts with right here, right now. In the sense that uh, Anicca, yeah, things are happening right now. Let's look at the things that are happening and changing right now. Let's not stay in the past because the past is already dead, solid, buried, 
okay, gone. And the, per, and the future is yet to be, doesn't exist, except between the years. So the past and the future only exist between the years. Right here, right now is happening in reality, right here, right now. So uh, when Goenka is talking about the body scanning, the students are bodily scanning right here, right now, if you're doing Anapana, they're doing the Anapanasati right here, right now. We can't contemplate or look at or enjoy a breath that happened last year. We had a lot of them back then. We weren't paying attention to them. How do we know what they were like? And who knows what breathing is going to be like in the future? The only breath we can watch is this one. Okay, that's an important quality, but I don't think Goenka actually puts it out like that. We can go even deeper than that. And that is, is that look at what's important in your life. Everything that's important in your life is not going to be important when you're dead. So the only thing that's really important is staying alive, being alive. Well, you can go for years without sex. You can go year, well, maybe 30 days without eating, maybe five days without drinking. But how long can you go without breathing? Not five long. Minutes. Maybe four maybe maybe four five four minutes, and by the four or five minutes, unless your will's really trained and really well skilled, you're in desperation, about to die, knowing that you don't you're going to die if you don't get that breath. So in that regard, in the immediate presence, the only thing that's happening that's important is our breathing, and yet we don't pay much attention to it. When we would understand, like in the Goenka retreat, how important the breathing is, we'll say, right, I'll hop right on it. But because that's not explained, it's difficult to figure out. This is why people go through a dark night of the soul is because they're struggling with what is dukkha and what is not dukkha. But we can get educated. We can get a very, very good map. For instance, if you're going to go to Los Angeles and you know that somebody lives on, uh, let us say, 15 court, you got to go all over the city to find 15 court unless you got a map, something Google, you know, to say, oh, the city looks this way and you're here and you can get over there that way. All right. So Vipassana practice is practicing without a map. And the Buddha gave a map. And the map is the Eightfold Noble Path. we got to practice and follow that because there's a real method there. And the Goenka and the Mahasi Method both only practice well two items of the, of the four that are needed. And you can find this in Sutta number 117. I will go so far as to say that after about three years of Goenka, I eventually left. And the reason that I left is because I knew that whatever he was teaching, there was something missing in his teaching. He didn't have it. But when I got to Thailand, I, be, I began to figure out what some of those things were that was missing. That in fact, um, when most Westerners, uh, let us say, begin to study Buddhism, they treat kind of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path as sort of like prerequisite material. you got to kind of learn it, and then we'll go on to the good stuff. 
But the entire practice is nothing but the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Noble Path. That's the only thing that there is. And Anapanasati is the only method that the Buddha gave. Now, this was a question that was really, really well done back in the sometime between the 1930s and the 1950s. Because Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa in Thailand made that assertion that the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation, and it is the Anapanasati Sutta. And he got such an uproar because those who knew about the, um, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta uh, and all of that, uh, they wind up with 40 methods of meditation. Okay? Have you heard of that? That there's 40. Ten of them, by the way, ten out of them, are the charnel ground meditations, which the Buddha stopped teaching. Because some of his uh, students, he went away and came back, and uh, uh, he asked the, the guy there, what, where is everybody? And he says, they're all dead. <laughs> they killed themselves because they were doing these corpse meditations, and you left and stayed away for three months. <laughs> and they killed themselves because... That was their object of meditation. So in reality, the Buddha doesn't teach those course meditations, so you can take a quarter of them out. There's also things like the jhanas themselves are mentioned in there, and so those are not meditation styles or techniques. Those are results, so you can throw that out. Another four of them are the Brahma Viharas. I mean, in this 40, they just threw everything in. Anything that they could find, they threw in there, and all they could come up with 40... And yet, when uh, when Bhikkhu Buddha Nasa says there's only one, it calls the Kapopal, and there was a, an immense literature search with all the Pali scholars, and they came back with, yeah, Bhikkhu Buddha Nasa was right, there is only one. These 40 meditations are not taught by the Buddha. The Brahma Paharas existed before the time of the Buddha, that the only thing that the Buddha taught, and he made sure that people knew that, there's four different suttas that we found where he says, I teach only one thing, both formally and now, I teach dukkha, dukkha naroda. Yes, which, but there is this metta sutta. No, the metta sutta, the Buddha did not teach metta. Mm -hmm. You look at that sutta and you will see that the, that the Buddha actually disagreed with that metta sutta. That in fact, the people who were practicing metta in the metta sutta were not bhikkhus. They were other mendicants, other wanderers around. Now, one of the things that they mentioned about it that's important was is that in order to do the metta, you have to be free from hindrances, which means that the metta, if it's done correctly, would be, um, let us say, um, going in the direction of the first jhana. But the way that metta is taught in the West of like, oh, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free from suffering. You've probably heard that little phrase before, right? It doesn't work because it's a lie. When we say may all beings be suffering, the implication is, is that me too, I want in there. How can I give someone a gift that I don't have to give them? That's the problem with the metta practice is that the people haven't got the metta to give away. Yes. But if they practice Anapanasati correctly, if they practice the Eightfold Noble Path correctly, then they will have metta to give away. But the metta practice with the Brahma Viharas of Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka, 
is already taught in other ways within the Buddha's uh, tradition. But those four things did exist, and they existed before the time of the Buddha. That's not part of his teaching. His teaching is a complete teaching, and it's got somewhere to go. Then, in fact, he does have opaka as part of the seven factors of enlightenment. Okay, so opaka is there. Yes, go ahead. So uh, what I understand from your teaching is, uh, like, you're also talking yourself positive thoughts, right? So you are you're telling yourself positive thoughts. And this is also a part of Anapanasati Sutta, right? So, like, may I be happy would be also a positive be, wholesome. Well, may I be happy is still what a loser would do. Mm-hmm. No, a wholesome thought would be, wow, this is great. Okay, one of them is going towards metta, and the other one is already on the other side of metta. One is saying future joy, the other one is present joy. That's the difference, you see. Okay, yes. That we have to practice and get the present mind in a present pleasant state. And then it can deal with metta. But when the mind is not in a pleasant state, they know such thing as metta, no matter how many little phrases people will say. There's not there, it's said from a loser. May I be um, free from suffering is a wish that's often given to some abstract thing out there that's going to help me, that's going to give me my wish. All right. And so uh, already that's from a victim's mentality. But when you understand the Eightfold Noble Path correctly, we can add that next ingredient. So we've gotten the first two. We've gotten Santi and Ditti. The third item on the list is very right effort. And the right effort is, is to take, to look at every thought in the present moment. Whenever we remember to be in the present moment, we look at the kind of thoughts that are in the present moment, like in the past three to four seconds. And if they are unwholesome, we change them to wholesome thoughts. This is right here in the sutta. Now, right wholesome thoughts is also in the Anapanasati Sutta under the phrase of gladdening the mind. Now, one thing though, the thoughts in the mind and the condition of the mind are are, uh, distinctions that are worth making. So the state of mind that you're in is what we're brightening. We're gladdening the state of mind, which is actually gladdening or brightening and coming out of the victim's position into the winner's position that way. Immediately, we can begin to get into the winner's position. We're going to make it a habit. We're going to make it really big and powerful, but we can't even practice in the beginning without having a little bit of confidence that we can do this. And so that's part of my job is to give the students the confidence that they actually can do it and get benefit. Now, the teaching of the Buddha is actually in the Dhammapada and many other places. It says that the teaching is good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end with the right phrasing and timing. 
All right, so that's what my job is, is to get the right phrasing and timing so that the students can practice good in the beginning and get benefit immediately from it. And then continue in the middle, all right? But the Goenka retreats is like all hell in the beginning, and it gets even worse in the middle, and they quit the course before they get to the end. Yes. And the, and the Mahasi method is kind of like okay in the beginning, one hell of a dark night of the soul in the middle, and nobody ever gets any further than that. All right, so this Daniel is not... Ingram, Go ahead. I, I was listening to Daniel Ingram, and he said uh, he went through this dark night of the soul, and then he, he came out of it. Yes, which meant he changed. That's yes. the whole point. He did make it past there. I congratulate him for being able to make the uh, the tremendous effort now, the redoubling of the effort to actually come into the Eightfold Noble Path and start getting someplace. Yes. That in fact, why should we throw the students into a, a great big forest and tell them that you've got to find your way to the cabin without a map? Why don't we give them a map? And the important part of the map that's missing is right effort. That we have, and that's right there on the Eightfold Noble Path to make an effort to change our attitude, to make a change to our mind state, and to make a change to our thoughts, and to make a change to the breath. And after we're doing some of that, we begin to make a change to the way that we're feeling. In other words, the whole point of the Satipatthana is to take control of it because the Satipatthana is the breaking down of your life. And it is better to be in control of one's life than out of control. We grow up out of control of our lives. We're all victims, all hoping and looking and wanting and hoping that people, everybody uh, gets what they want and all of that kind of stuff. But it ain't the winner's attitude. The winner's attitude is the teaching of the Buddha. You know that the Buddha was known as a lion. And you can see some of the suttas in uh, where it says it doesn't matter what kind of assembly he goes into. He can sit down in that assembly and converse with the people um, as a winner. Most kids, when they go like a brand new senator, goes to the Senate, he's new there, and he's got no confidence. The Buddha is saying that it doesn't matter where he goes, he's in charge of the place. That's the way that we begin to live. When you walk into Walmart, you own Walmart. When you walk into the Senate building, you own the Senate building. It's yours. You've got it. Okay, that's the kind of an attitude that I'm at home wherever I go. This place is mine in that regard, as opposed to the victim's position of this is a dangerous place. I don't know my way around. Okay, so we're talking about an attitude. But the point that I'm making here is about our feelings, because if you can control your feelings and control the way that you feel, then you actually are in control of your life. But the way that we do it is by working with the mind and working with the body, and then together they will work on the feelings. This is how that's done, is with the body, we have to make it real. 
in the sense of whatever we're going to experience in feeling has to match reality. And so in the body, the reality is, is that we're going to be practicing in a safe place. We do not go to the police station or to the prison to practice Anapanasati. We don't practice it on an airplane full of people. Okay, we practice it based best alone. Away in seclusion, the Buddha was really big on seclusion to get away from it all. Why? Because in seclusion, we can feel safe and comfortable. And so the body has to be safe and comfortable. Well, you're from India. You might be able to appreciate this, but Westerners, because of the northern climates mostly, by the time that a child is two years old, they're grabbed off the floor and put in a high chair. And they rarely spend any time on the floor for the rest of their lives. But in the tropics, like here in Thailand, almost all of the families eat on the floor. There are no chairs because we don't need chairs. We can sit on the floor. Now, Thailand is beginning to move in that direction, partly because plastic chairs are dirt cheap. They're like $3 or $2 or something like that. And so then we'll now buy a bunch of those chairs and people can sit around on the chairs rather than sitting on the ground. When all the parents come to the school, they've got chairs to sit on. But that slowly is changing. Most at home sit on the floor. Westerners, when they sit on the floor, are in great pain. For that reason, meditation practice at the Goanka retreats for the Westerners is kind of a hell because their bodies are not comfortable. Not for not for long, not for a while. They keep buying pillows. I mean, sufus and other uh, meditation uh, equipment, Zen stools, all kinds of stuff. There's a big market for that in order to help people to feel comfortable while they're in uncomfortable postures. It's better just to get a chair and be comfortable. This is the important thing. Why? Because if your body is not comfortable, it's going to be hard for you to feel comfortable. If the body yes. is comfortable, then uh, safe, secure, and comfortable is what we're looking for in the body. And then we work with the breathing so that it becomes long and easy, and then the body begins to relax. And any tensions in the body, through the scanning method or whatever Gawakas did, we find those tensions and let go of them which means that I might need to rub my neck, to twist it around, to give myself a, a, a massage, whatever it is, is to get the body to relax, which is step four, Manapanasati. But that relaxation was, is going to take a while, and we've got other stuff to do. Go ahead. So this was also another difference between uh, your teaching and going to teaching, this comfort part. First off, it's not, first off, this is not my teaching. Okay, from your... From what I'm getting from you, the comfort part is uh, because Goenka also insisted on sitting long hours, and uh, he said uh, even if you have pain, just stay, don't move. So this aditana sitting. <laughs> I know the teaching. And that's uh, and then when I was doing at home, it was getting very difficult because I thought that pain is good, so you really should sit and should not move and should just. Uh, but it was not helping. But uh, after talking to you, you also told to sit small, like 10 minutes, 5 minutes, mm -hmm. several times, like frequently. To, to get good value, you see, 
But you see, Goenka wants people to sit there until it hurts. Yes. Where is the good in the beginning there? <laughs> that They're missing something, you see. It's gotten a tradition like that. The tradition, I think, is coming from lay people, which they think that the life of the monk is really hard. And there's some reason why the monks allow the lay people to think that, so that the, the lay people will think that they're big and val valuable and important and worth, um, um, uh, they're worthy of being fed. Okay. But the real point is, is that the life of a monk is dead easy. In fact, that's the whole point of it is stop working so hard. And meditation is not a work. Meditation is learning to stop our working. Except that the problem with the word meditation itself uh, holds that connotation of work through the Christian use of the word meditation. So meditation is not something that the Buddha taught. He taught it in the sense of the word practice. And Anapanasati is the only practice method that the Buddha gave in order to practice the Eightfold Noble Path. And we can see how that operates directly through, uh, through the two suttas together. So we wake up, we take a look, and we make a change. We wake up, we take a look, and make a change. All right. These can be seen in step nine of Anapanasati of the investigation of the mind. And step 10 is gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. So those are both of, on that idea of change. And the breathing is used in the sense of the sati, but sati is in other places in the um, uh, Anapanasati Sutta. But the name of it is sati, Anapanasati, right? So the waking up. So that we can look at the mind, wake up, look at the mind, and make a change. This is the Eightfold Noble Path, over and over again. And then the Buddha says that wake up, to make, uh, to wake up, take a look, and make a change. These three things run in circle around each other to build the skill. To wake up, take a look, and make a change. What are we looking at? Dukkha. All right. The dark night of the soul means that people can't see the dukkha until it grabs them by the throat, and then they're in the dark night of the soul. What we're practicing here is we're actively in a good mood going out and looking for it because we're looking for the really kind of little dukkhas and throwing them out. Because if we can keep throwing the little dukkhas out, we're not going to have a city dump of a mind. We're going to clean the mind. Whenever we see it, starting right from the beginning to where both the Goenka and the Mahasi method, they don't do the cleaning. They just get really good at recognizing they live in a junkyard. But with the actual practice of the Buddha is make a change, to change that dukkha, to, uh, to remove those unwholesome thoughts and to replace them with wholesome thoughts. Now, here's the point. Both Goenka and the Mahasi talk about the hindrances. The hindrances are well known. They're all over the suttas. I can give you 50 or 15 or 20 suttas that talk about the hindrances. Sutta number 39 is brilliant about the, the hindrances. Sutta number 48 talks about them in great detail. Um, but the hindrances have to be dealt with before the mind can get in anywhere. 
like into the first jhana, that that's the first jhana factor of the first jhana. The very number one is coming out of the hindrances. Also in the metta practice, the number one thing to do is to come out of the hindrances. Right? What is that? If you're in a hindrance, you see you're in a hindrance, you change and come out of it. Those hindrances are in the sutras all over the place, 100%. And Goenka talks about them, but he doesn't talk about them in the sense that you've got to get rid of them right away. But he does say when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. That means then that wherever the monkey mind went was a hindrance. And you should bring it back and come back to the present moment with the breath. So he's right. Gawanka method isn't even that smart. <laughs> Gawanka's got some improvements over the Mahasi method. So, um, the, uh, he, he's got it built in, the change model, but he doesn't emphasize it like it is on the Eightfold Noble Path. He doesn't talk about it much, but it's certainly built into the model that he uses when he says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Because that's exactly the Eightfold Noble Path right there. Is that when your mind wanders into the garbage, come out of the garbage <laughs> and start again. And yet it's not taught at all in the Mahasi method until they get into the dark night of the soul. And that's when, when uh, for instance, when Daniel figures out that he's had enough of this, we got to make a change. That means that he's coming actually closer to the method of the Buddha, which yes. has got to change built in right from the very beginning. The first time that someone sits down to meditation within the Gwanka method would be when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. So he's right there with getting those hindrances out of the mind. So why you say that he doesn't have a change model built in, I'm not sure. Because he does say to change the mind. Yes, it 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 comes sometimes, but uh, but for instance, he would not say if your body is uncomfortable, make it comfortable, right? Right. So this change he would not tell. Or uh, he say if you have uh, if you have a pain, or let's say if you have some thought, you say just observe the thought. Don't don't try to change the thought. And right. he would say, observe some sensation associated with thought. Right. Not to well, work where did he? So there's a basic contradiction based into his teaching then. If you have wholesome, unwholesome thoughts, then just let them be unwholesome thoughts. How does that fit in when the mind wanders away from the breath? Never mind, start again. Those are two contradictory statements. Yes. Yes, they are. He, he also gave this example is, uh, for instance, if you are angry, and then there are some methods which say, okay, you count instead of oh, you know, so just count right. till ten. But you say if you are doing it, it's not good enough because then the anger is still there at a lower level, and you are suppressing the anger. Yeah, except that so you can't suppress it. it. You can't suppress it at all. There's no such thing as suppression. Not in reality. Suppression is kind of like a. Uh, a, mis a misshapen bad understanding in psychotherapy and that lingers and lingers the way to look at it is not something that's very deep but rather in this moment it doesn't happen often 
or it happens frequently. But whether yes. it's buried or not, that's also they say that then things are lurking in the background. No, they're not lurking in the background. These thoughts are happening, but when that thought comes, it's in the foreground. And then the next thoughts will be in the foreground. There's only foreground thoughts. There are no background thoughts. There are, um, let us say, events that come into the foreground for short periods of time, and then we think that they're in the background, but that's only a way of, of speaking. The reality is, is one thing happens after another, after another. Okay, that, so there's no such thing as suppressing anger. What that means, though, is, is that you will have angry thoughts less frequently if they're suppressed. And in that regard, I'm glad. It's better to have them right there, you know, uh, suppressing them means that they may, in fact, be less frequent and less frequent and less frequent. Especially if you are guarding to make sure that they are less frequent. So when thoughts of anger come up, we can say, never mind, start again. Yes. Come back to the breath. So this is an important point that that phrase, never mind, start again, actually puts the um, uh, the Goenka method quite superior to the Mahasi method because they say when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, just let it go. Mm. Rising, you know, touching, sitting, rising, falling, touching, sitting. Forget about it. Just let your mind just wander away. Just watch it wander, you know. It's like when the horse runs out of the corral, you know, they, they are out of the, the barn, you know, you, you shut the barn door uh, after the horse leaves, okay? Well, the uh, the Mahasi method is after the horse leaves the barn, you're supposed to watch it as it walls, as it runs away, and there it goes, and you lost your horse because you don't make the change of getting your gear and getting on another horse and going and getting him. They just let it go, right? Okay, so this is uh, this is absolutely easily understood to be not the Buddha's practice. With the Goenka method, it's getting close, but there's still some issues with it. But this is the point, is, is that the hindrances are not in either the Mahasi or the Goenka, and certainly not within the, uh, the, the Vajrayana method. They're not emphasized. And yet that's the first thing that we have to do is we have to change the unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Because otherwise they're going to hinder us. Well, hinder us from what? In hindering us from being in a state of satisfaction, hindering us from being uh, successful, hindering us from feeling the way that we want to feel, because instead we're feeling the way that the hindrances are making us feel. There is a connection between you have unwholesome thoughts, you're going to have unwholesome feelings. But if you have unwholesome thoughts and then somehow you get wholesome feelings, then the wholesome feelings can take over and you'll have wholesome thoughts now about the wholesome feelings. An example of that is, I wish my mommy would come home. I wish my mommy would come home. And I'm saying I wish my mommy would come home and I start feeling bad. And I look up and without a thought, I see her. And my feelings go great. And then the feelings that I have will say, wow, I'm glad mom's home. But I already felt good by the time I've said that while wow, mom is home. All right. So these things interact with each other. 
And so if we can, in fact, begin to change one of them, we'll change the other. And the one that we're working on now is to change the thoughts that we're having and changing the way that the body is positioned so we can begin to feel the way that we want to feel. So we begin to feel, we begin to talk to ourselves and we begin to have the body postures of feeling safe. Feeling safe and secure is number one item in the practice of Anapanasati. Why is that? Is because almost all of human problems come from fear. Anger comes from fear. Sadness comes from fear, the fear of loss. The fear of, oh, poor me, what's going to happen to me now when mom dies? Okay, it's all fear. Sense of loss, uh, uh, sense of doom, any of those kind of negative feelings have the feeling of fear mixed in with them. In fact, that's the primary method of uh, the self-preservation instinct, which takes us back then to anatta. The self-preservation instinct means that the ignorance is because of the change, I've got to feel bad. But the reality is, is that it, yeah, the change happened, but it's not dangerous. And therefore, there's no dukkha in it. So when we begin to see the, uh, the change, Anicca, we can still maintain the position of, well, since it's not me, it's not dangerous to me, and I don't feel fear, which is where the dukkha comes from. This is a good point to understand that when we don't care, then it's not dangerous. If it's not dangerous, there's no fear. So we practice that to become fearless, not fearless in the way that a, a warrior would walk into battle fearless, but fearless in the way that that warrior did not go into battle. He didn't dress for battle. He made supper for his opponent. Because he's not afraid of the opponent. Fearlessness is when you've got fear anyway, and you're going to be, you know, go get get done whatever you have to do because uh, it's dangerous. And the other one, the fear of the um, feeling safe and secure is because there's no danger at all. There's no battle to be had. So feeling that sense of safety is what we promote because the hindrances will take us out. They'll find dangers. We'll get worried about something because we feel dangerous. So let's get those dangers out of there so that we can feel safe and secure and comfortable. The body is comfortable so we can have thoughts of being safe, secure and comfortable to where most of our unwholesome thoughts are all about being unsafe, unsuffortable, unsecure. What we've got to do, the list of problems that we have, et cetera, like that. So we're coming to the point of no problems because all of those problems are not my problems. There are somebody else's problems. And the only reason that there's somebody else's problems is because they think so, but I don't think so. I think that I'm okay. They can have that problem. They can deal with that problem. They can fix that problem. Me, I'm having fun. So this is a new attitude that we're taking, but that new attitude comes from the feeling of safe, secure, comfortable, and then we become satisfied. And you can become satisfied, which is going along in the direction of learning to feel like a champion, feeling like a winner, feeling like um, a successful. 
but we have to get that success. And what is the success? Throwing the hindrances out and gladdening the mind and having wholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, so number one, wake up. Number two, look at what you're doing. Number three, make a change. And then number four, the Sama Sankapa, is to congratulate yourself. To wake up, make a change, wake up, look at what you're doing, make a change, and congratulate yourself. Become that winner. Take on that that mantle of I'm the lion here. Look at me. I can change my mind. If I can change it once, I can change it again. And one of the sutras, in fact, it says is that when the mind is free from the hindrances, often enough, then the student comes to the position that no matter how much my mind gets hindered, no matter what the obstruction is, no matter what the situation that creates that destruction, like getting arrested, getting wounded, getting into an accident, you know, all the really big stuff. It doesn't matter what it is. I can get out of my bad mood about it and come to the present moment and see reality as it is. No matter how hindered the mind, I can come out of it See the present moment as it actually is. Now, that state is a state that the Buddha calls introduction or the first step. This is the first knowledge that is noble, that is super mundane. So this is what we mean by the first step of Sotapan. The first step, the first entry into Sotapan is an attitude change. From the attitude of, oh, poor me, into the attitude of, I can clean out my mind. That's an important point. The first knowledge. And the last point about it is, not only is it noble, is it super mundane, and it is part of the path, the Eightfold Noble Path. This is also not held by ordinary people. Only a few people are capable of removing the hindrances to the point that they know that they can do it anytime. Okay, that's the first step of the soda pine, is that knowledge that I can do it. It's that budding or the brand new uh, winner's mentality. So this is where the change comes in, and that's Anicca. Everything is Anicca, but we can learn to control it by watching. And after we get the need to change, then we can gain the benefit of the success of having changed it. And our attitude changes. So now we're only working with four items on the Eightfold Noble Path. Only four. And look how far we've come. That in fact, when we put those four together and integrate it, the mind itself becomes integrated and whole. It becomes unified. We don't get into arguments with ourselves. We don't have full of doubt. We don't lie to people or to ourselves. Okay, this is the right unification of mind is referred to in the Pali is Sama area Samati. Now the Samati that we're talking about here is unification and organization, not concentration. The Buddha did Mm -hmm. not teach a concentration. He taught an opening. Concentrating is Did getting small. This is the word samadhi. It means gathering all of the factors together. 
That's what it means. It does not Samadhi mean. Samadhi or Samadhi? It's the same word. Samadhi, Samadhi, okay. It's the same word. It's just different pronunciation by different people. Hmm. It's the same word, spelled the same way, and misunderstood in exactly the same way. And so because of our timing, I'm not going to go into a great deal of arguments and uh, details about why it does not mean concentration, which is what it says in English uh, translations, mm -hmm. but whether it means exactly is organization, unification. So when the mind is unified and organized, what that means is, is that you don't want anything. That you're satisfied, that things are good enough like they are right now. So if that's the case, then if you're satisfied and don't want anything, it's unlikely to kill somebody to get it. If your mind is satisfied, organized, and you don't want anything, it's unlikely for you to go steal it. Or to go rat people out or to tell lies to protect yourself because you don't need to protect yourself because there's no self to protect because you're satisfied. Okay. So in this regard, we're practicing Sila Samati Panya, which is not the order for ordinary people. The beginner always goes Sila Samati Panya. But the mm. point is, is that once they get Panya, now they can practice the noble path. And the noble path is to take that Panya to develop organized, wise mind. And therefore, we're not going to harm anybody because we see the Dukkha in that. And I'm not going to go do the dukkha because I can see it already. Okay, so the Eightfold Noble Path is the beginning of the path, which is good, the middle of the path, which is the samadhi, which is good, and then right upstanding moral behavior, the noble behavior, then would be good in the end in that regard. So sila samadhi panya is always, the sila is painful. The samadhi is painful. The panya is painful until it becomes noble, and then the, the, there's no more pain in it. The noble path is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And so with our knowledge, with our wisdom, we develop an organized mind, and with that organized mind, we have high-quality morality. Also, the sila is, uh, so there's also these precepts. Precepts, right? The precepts that you're talking about is for the children and for adult Westerners introduction to Buddhism. Mm. It's not the teaching of the Buddha. Precepts a lot of them, not, for me, like drinking beer, right? So people in Germany, so this is their cultural, this is, this is like a cultural thing. So they drink beer. So in a sense, they are breaking a precept. But I think well, it's, it's I didn't write those work. precepts. <laughs> I didn't write those precepts. The Buddha didn't write those precepts. Who wrote those precepts? Were they before when Buddha came? No, those things I think were developed um, maybe about the first century BC, four or five hundred years after the time of the Buddha is when that stuff became ritualized, formalized, and organized, rather than mm. left at a natural place. Now, in the, uh, in the um, 
the great 40, the sutta about the um, Eightfold Noble Path, they have the right livelihood at, uh, after, that's the last on the list, with right speech and right action, with a great deal of detail in there, but there's nothing about alcohol. There is nothing that, in fact, uh, the precepts are part of right action, which is not killing, not harming, um, not uh, taking things that are not given, and sexual misconduct, those three. And then the fourth one is right speech, which has also the detail of not malicious lying, not, uh, um, excuse me, not deliberate lies, not malicious gossip, uh, not uh, uh, expletive language, and not frivolous language, okay? But uh, malicious gossip is very common for people. They don't know that you're breaking the precepts, even though, uh, because all it has in the in the precepts is musawada. Musawada we ramani sakavadam samati ami. And that musawada has a whole lot of stuff built into it from behind. But the alcohol is not there. there the, in fact, everything about alcohol is in the, uh, the Vinaya or the Vinaya where uh, the stories are. And that the point is, is that uh, the use of alcohol is common in all kinds of places. So uh, the, the monks were not forbidden alcohol. It's a medicine. To rub on your arm and places like that, and in fact, mouthwash and other kind of products have alcohol built in them. So alcohol is not a uh, uh, the problem, and the use of alcohol is is not a, a, a part of the patty malt. But getting drunk on alcohol is heedlessness. But I can imagine that because of low class people in everywhere, for instance, um, uh, even in Thailand, there's a lot of alcoholics. There's alcoholics in every country and alcoholics themselves until they're cured from alcohol are not going to get much out of the Dhamma. Okay, so I can understand why in the fifth, first century BC that they put that in there, but that was not a teaching of the Buddha. So um, in, in many ways, you could say that the precepts actually interfere, just like many other teachings that people think are Buddhism, which is not Buddhism at all. The Buddha didn't teach any of that. He didn't teach about rebirth and reincarnation or how to build temples or any of that kind of stuff. He only taught one thing, which is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. Everything is there. Even the teaching, the deep teaching of Paticca Samuppada is nothing but a great big explanation of the second noble truth. So, in fact, most of the teachings of the Buddha through all those suttas is about the second noble truth, about where this dukkha, where everything comes from, to make sure that everybody understands that the, the source of all of it is from between the ears. It doesn't come from out there. So if it comes from in here, the only way to fix it is by changing what's in here. You got to change what's in there. And when you do change what's in there, you say, wow, this is so nice. And then the fourth item of the Sama Sankapa, the relief, the wow, we've got it. 
the success. That's the fourth item. So wake up, take a look, make a change, and then enjoy the change. So these wake four up. items are not for. So these are the these are the items from the this list is from the uh, for, uh, not the eightfold path, is it? This is the eightfold noble path. This is the Eightfold Noble Path. We've been talking about the Eightfold Noble Path for a long time now. Nothing but the Eightfold so four, Noble Path. These four are the four lists. So the wake up, take a look, make a change, and congratulate yourself. These are the four first four mm -hmm. items. And the then, the, then the fifth item would be the organization of mind. When we do these four things, the mind becomes organized and fit. And with a fit and organized samadhi mind, we behave ourselves quite well. So the sila comes last. Sila comes last. Sila is the outcome. Sila is the aftermath. Sila is after the football game where the stadium is clean, not full of garbage. <laughs> so the fans. Sila is number eight. Sila is listed as number eight in the wrong direction. Actually, if you read the sutta, it's one, two, three, four, and then five. Hmm. It it works with right view, right sati, right effort, right attitude, and right organization of mind in that order, followed then by right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and those are the eight. That's the order that they come in in the noble dhamma. In the ordinary dhamma, they're all over the place. Yes. Then they don't work. And then they don't work. Well, that's because nobody's practicing them as the Eightfold Noble Path. They're, yes. pra they're not even practicing at all. It's just literature. It's just knowledge. It's just something yes. that I know, but we don't put into practice. Yes, if you don't, okay. if you don't look what's happening in your mind, so you will not be able to follow Sila, right? Because well, all, all kinds of unwholesome stuff is happening. Let me give you a small example. Let us say that we had a rabbi in a small village, and he was also uh, the meat man in the sense that every goat and every lamb that's killed in that village has to be brought to him for him to give it a ritualized killing. In the Jewish uh, sense, they call that kosher, and in the Islamic, they call it halil. But the, the animal has to be killed in a certain way and then dressed in a certain way, according to tradition. So here you've got this rabbi, and it's his job to do the killing. And he goes out there with his killing knife, and this guy's brought this uh, lamb or this goat, and he looks at the goat, and the goat looks back at him in a certain way that the, um, uh, the rabbi has compassion. He has empathy. He can't kill this goat. This is too important. The goat is alive. I can't kill it. So that means that in that particular moment, his mind, he walked out there as a Jewish rabbi about to kill the goat. But something happened and his mind became noble. And then he couldn't kill the lamb. Mm. If we can, in fact, foster and endear and practice having the noble mind, then we won't be doing so much killing. 
or anything else, even if that's our job to kill. A noble will not kill animals for a living. And that that rabbi would probably be a much higher class religious dude if he didn't do the killing. Okay, so this is the example then that we'll use to recognize that at any moment in time when any kid who is about to hit another kid and then stops and doesn't do it, it's because his mind became noble enough that he stopped doing it. That we can wake up and remind ourselves and everybody can do that. But the noble one is the one who does it often. He remembers to be correct, to be upstight or up, up, up straight, not upstight, but um, um, correct. And so this is how we're practicing is to have wholesome thoughts rather than unwholesome thoughts. The unwholesome thought is I got to go kill another goat. But the wholesome thought is, wow, that goat is so beautiful. It deserves to live or something like that. Okay, so this is this is how we begin to change our mind. So the Buddha's method is completely built upon a change method. That's why Anicca Dukkha Anatta is talked about the way that it is, because we've got a choice. Are we going to go for the Dukkha? That means that we're in it, that we are the Dukkha. Or are we going to go for Anatta, which means the Dukkha is not mine, out it goes. But we have to make that change. So the Buddha's model is a change model. Gowanka knows enough about it to say, never mind, start again. The change is built into that. But within the Mahasi method, they don't even know that much. Just look, just look, just look. And the more you look and the more you see, the more miserable you're going to get and more fearful you're going to get. And you're heading right into the dark night of the soul. But we don't need to do that. So there's one last point about that, and that is dark nights of the soul have another term for them called rock bottom. Rock bottom means that you've gone about as deep into the dukkha as it's possible to go. Skid row bums, et cetera, like that. Alcoholics, you know, they've lost their life or whatever like that, and they know that they have to make a change now. Things have gotten too bad. And so this is, by the way, about AA. AA uses that, and Alcoholics Anonymous talk about that rock bottom because if if an alcoholic hasn't hit rock bottom by the time they come to AA, then they may not do well. The example of that is AA is tremendous failure at court-appointed alcoholics. If the judge says, Mr. Alcoholic, you got to go to AA, that's doomed for failure. But if Mr. Alcoholic decides he's got to go to AA because he's suffering enough, then he'll get some value out of AA. You see what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, the same thing applies then to the dark night of the soul. But the point is, is that if you are an adult, if you are smart, if you are wise, if you were in look, you don't have to have a ton of dukkha. You can see a little of it and do something about it. This thought, a thought of revenge, a thought, I'm going to get that guy. Wait a minute, I don't have to think about him. He's not here. Or if I had a a fight this morning with Aunt Susie, and now I'm sitting and thoughts of that argument with Aunt Susie comes up, and I can say, wait a minute, I don't have to think about Aunt Susie right now. She's not even here. 
why am I suffering and complaining in my own mind about the argument that I had, planning the next argument, in fact, when, in fact, I can sit here and enjoy my life and I, without Aunt Susie. She went to town anyway. She's not even here. Why should I be worried about somebody who's not even around here? Okay, so this is how we begin to practice, is to recognize that many of the thoughts about many of the people that we think about are not here. So there's no reason to think about them. We can have a whole lot of fun while they're gone. We don't have to bring them here in our mind. So the best so thing to do is. Pardon? So this reminds me this alcohol, Alcoholic Anonymous story you were telling. So this reminds me a story about uh, Richard Feynman. OK, uh, he was so he, he, he used to drink socially and once he got an urge to drink alone. And he was going to a bar. And then then he realized, oh, actually, this is not good because then, you know, he will start drinking. Uh, again and again, and then he, he might become an alcoholic and then mm -hmm. immediately stop. Then he make a rule that he drink only when he is in a group he, for in a social context. Mm -hmm. So he changed. So okay. he didn't go. He didn't need to go to the rock bottom, and then, then okay. Uh, so he made a rule when he found out that he, if he's alone, he'll drink. Therefore, he's going to make a rule to keep him out of it, right? Yes. Okay. Well, a lot of people make a lot of rules in meditation rather than just merely practicing correctly. Okay. Yeah. And so one of the things that we're going to see happening is, is that a lot of the rules that we have already made, especially those long ago, are inappropriate and cause trouble because the rule yeah. is there. Okay. For instance, old people can't get around. But if one, but if an old guy who was a great athlete and he's got the rule, he's got to be the very best at the athletics. When he gets old, now he's miserable because he can't do, the body can't do what it used to do. He needs to drop that and give himself permission to get old now. It's okay to yes. be old. You don't have to keep going the way that you used to. So the rules have to change. Not only to the thoughts, but eventually also even the rules to where if we're doing it correctly, we wind up with only one rule. And that is the entire teachings of the Buddha, Dukkha Dukkha Naroda, which means in this moment, I've got a choice to either take Dukkha or Anatta. And that's the only rule that I'm going to have is Dukkha or Dukkha Naroda. That's the only rule. But look how many rules. I mean, uh, the IRS has, what, 80,000 pages of rules. Just to speak the English language, we have thousands of rules. People who spoke Hindi as natural and then learned English as an adult, there's a lot of rules changes, including the way that the face moves and whatnot. So you can imagine just how many rules there are, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of rules. And we can just drop all of that. And in the moment, we can choose one right rule, and that is friendliness, joy, no suffering, no anger, no remorse, no revenge, just everything is okay. Dukkha Naroda. That's the only rule that we should have to be friends with yourselves and to be friends with others. But that takes a huge amount of change a huge amount of rules to be thrown out, to be investigated and tossed out. 
files to be deleted takes what takes time and effort to delete that stuff. Otherwise, it gets in the way. Yes. <sighs> so that's what it's like. That's all it is. And there's not really that much difference between the Goenka's method. He just didn't have all of the details lined up. And a lot yes. of people have so much trouble in there because they're basically missing that one point that, hey, guys, why should you come here to work? In fact, he uses the work. You got to work. You've heard that. You got to work. The Buddha doesn't say you got to work. The Buddha says you got to stop working. You got to <laughs> stop. Work itself is unwholesome. Yes, and one another thing with the Goenka, I, I don't think it was from Goenka or the senior, the teacher there, but they discouraged you to practice with other uh, with other methods. They say, okay, this is a method, you just keep this method and don't. Oh, but don't that's an it. old thing. And back in the old, old days when I was around, um, most of the students who went were Indians, not Westerners. And as you know, within Western Buddhism, we're very limited in our practices. But in India, with all of the pujas, you can imagine that there is a huge variety of stuff. And so yes. what was happening was, is that people were coming in to take the Goenka course. And while they were there, they were doing all kinds of other stuff. Mala beads, chanting. Uh, just, I mean, it was a lot, it was a madhouse, and that's why he finally made the rule, is, is that, hey, if you're going to come here, practice what we're practicing, not practice what you learned at the temple, okay? And you can appreciate why he had make that kind of a rule, but now the students who have just the volunteers that have been there, they didn't figure out to know what was going on, and so they just made a rule. They heard Goenka's rule, you got to do what we're doing here. And so they, without without any common sense, they just kept the rule. It's passed down yes. from generation to generation. I mean, there are a lot of cultural stuff where people in a particular segment of culture will do the most ridiculous things to all of the other subcultures around, but it's part of their culture. And so everybody does the same thing within that culture. Like, for instance, wear the same kind of clothing or not drive cars. We drive buggies, you know, that kind of thing. Or in India, there's all kinds of different practices and, and, and whatnot. So um, that's the reason for, for that. But what he is teaching is not complete. So those uh, students, uh, volunteers that they have are actually harming their audience by making the kind of rules, oh, you've got to do it exactly this way, and this way is exactly broken. It's not complete, doesn't have what you need, okay? And so there's one more thing in there, and that is, is that Goenka, like most gurus, did not set up a lineage. He has no successors. That in fact, Ubakin did. We have Goenka, Mother Siama, John Campbell, uh, and, and several others. Uh, Uma Ken uh, encouraged people to teach. 
But at yes. the Goanka retreat, there's no teachers. There's a videotape. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. What does that mean? It means that Goanka himself was too lazy to train a lineage. And so don't trust any of the volunteers at a Goanka place because they were not authorized in what they say through the lineage. This is why lineages are really, really important, like little lineage with Achan Cha, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, many different lineages in Thailand, but we can trace mm -hmm. it all the way back. In fact, I can trace my lineage back to 1860, 170 years ago. Now that's pretty well traced down. <laughs> but um, uh, we can only trace Goanka back just one generation to Ubaikin, though we know that some of the people that Ubaikin associated with. But here's the problem. If there is no lineage, then uh, the, the teachers themselves don't feel really qualified to teach because they didn't get the, the authorization to teach from their lineage. Mm. So where that's exactly why I'm out here on the Internet is because Achan Po, my teacher, has asked me to come spread the noble dhamma on the internet. And so I can because I'm authorized to do it. If he hadn't ordered me to do this, hey man, I'd be hanging out. I wouldn't give a flying rep about all of the students in the world or not my trouble, not my problem. But when you do call, I have a ball. I enjoy my calls. So yes. start to enjoy your life. That's the whole point that I'm making about Goenka. Is, is that he didn't set up a lineage. But I have several students that I am encouraging to teach and to, and to set up so that we can have, not necessarily in the robes, but we can have a lineage so that we can trace it back to know where things come from. Hmm. And that Goenka didn't do that. That was one of his major failures, was no lineage. Yes, but Goenka lineage is coming from Ubakin, right? So, well, but it stopped. So what, with the, it stopped. I don't know, in fact, whether Ubakin has any further lineage or not. But when Goenka died, Ubakin's lineage with with Goenka died because Goenka did not have any students who became teachers. That, yes, in fact, within the Goenka. Within the Goenka training system, within all that they have, the organization that's, that's occurring there, if one person came up and says, I will teach a Goenka retreat here, they'll say, oh, no, you won't. We're going to go with the tapes. We don't want real teachers here. We want old tapes. You can yes. come and volunteer, but you can't teach. Yes. Right? Which means that you know the, the lineage is dead. But somehow Goenka retreats become super popular. So do, do you know why? Why they got so popular? I and don't think that it is. I, I, in fact, I don't think that it's being super popular. And part so of the reason that is all over the world. Uh, all over the world is kind of a, um, uh, um, how do you say, grandiose term. Yes, there are retreat centers in the United States. I think two. There are centers in Thailand, one. There are centers in India, three or four. There are, I don't know. Uh, there are many centers. 
okay? But they all take, do the tapes. See, in fact, you could say that one of the reasons why it can grow is because they don't have the teachers. They'd use the tape. But my point is, is that it doesn't matter how many people take a Goenka course, if not one of them gains nobility, then what's the point? Th yes. Then, in fact, I would go so far as to say that, yes, the Goenka method is, in fact, the first grade. It's the second grade. And I would rather students have gone through the first and second grade with me rather than me have to teach them the first and the second grade before I teach the third grade. Or low school, middle school, high school, or maybe university, whatever system that you want in there, that Goenka system is a beginner's course. It's for beginners. And that most of the people who take those courses don't go back. They don't go back because the first one was too hard. Yes. Yes. Or they do go back because they're hard too. Yes. But in fact, that's what seems to be with the Goenka method is the people, I gotta have it, I gotta have it, and I gotta have it, and I'll put in so much work and work and work and work. And I'll I'll take those kind of students because what I want to teach them is, hey man, stop working so hard. That this actually the teaching of the Buddha is easy. Yes. Here's, here's part of the issue with that one thing, and that is is that our thoughts and our feelings are what we use to base our speech. What we say will be the base of what we do. What we do over and over again becomes the base of our habits. And our habits become our destiny. Now, everybody wants to change our destiny. They want to change their whole life. And that's a whole lot of work. But the teaching of the Buddha is really simple because we're not trying to change the destiny. We're not even trying to change the habits. We're not even trying to uh, change our actions what, or even the speech. What we're trying to do is to change this thought. Because this thought we can change. And that's the only practice is to change this thought, and to change this thought, to make this thought wholesome, and to make this thought wholesome. And doing that over and over again begins to build the habit. So the practice is easy, but it has to be done 20,000 times. It's like you got a whole big, um, let us say, bag, maybe 100 kilograms of sand. And that's going to be a really, really, really heavy thing to carry around. But you could cut that bag open and fill a teacup with sand and then go deliver a teacup of sand over and over and over again. And the delivery is uh, the work, but the the sand is easy. Just to keep just a, uh, a cup full. All right. So yes. that's the way that uh, the Goenka method is trying to pick up the whole bag of sand and tote it around and it's really heavy. The same thing with the Mahasi method. With here we emphasize, oh no, just one teaspoon of sand, just one uh, cup of sand at a time. That's all we're dealing with. And pretty soon we can deal with, uh, because we have done it so many times, we've actually got quite a pile of sand over there in the noble area. Yes, so this is also, also some success I realized following this method is uh, I observe sometimes I have uh, I have a negative thought and if they are there for five minutes then you really start feeling heavy 
and then I realized, okay, this is there is this connection. Right. But if I stop, so when you stop, recognize um, that it's got it heavy, drop it, throw it out, let it go. And then you start having positive thoughts. You do it a little bit um, with the intention, but after after a while, you realize you are feeling good. So you know this this happens. It takes me five ten minutes, five ten minutes of positive thoughts, and then you start feeling good. And this connection somehow I was missing before. That okay, this there is such a strong connection between the thoughts and the feeling. Okay, right. And so we can recognize that those two things work together. So this is where we make that change. This is that in this moment to remember to look at what we're doing right now, make a change right now, and then say, well, I'm better off right now. I'm really glad I don't have to think about Aunt Susie in that argument. We can stop doing that and get relief. But we have to do that 100,000 times because already we've spent our whole life talking ourselves into feeling bad now it's time for us to start training ourselves and talking ourselves into feeling good. Yes. And uh, a lot of times the uh, thoughts are just happening, even though you're doing some work, you're cleaning a house or something, but internally you have this negative thought going on and then you feel heavy after, after a mm -hmm. while. So exactly. it's, uh, it's really important to wake up. Oh, actually what's happening? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, we've been running now about an hour and 40 minutes. I'm really glad I've enjoyed our conversation, but we can we can bring it to a close. I think that we've uh, been down the Gawanka path one more time. <laughs> and that it's, no, it's good to it's, see. Uh, so we can actually uh, practice correctly by following Gawanka's instructions of when the mind wanders away from your breath, never mind. Yes change again. and and come back and start again it is a change model yes all right well we'll see you guys later thank you so much okay, bye thank you i will see you soon see you soon bye bye okay bye bye